Psalm 40, my help and my deliverer. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. As we continue our study of the Psalms this morning, we come, as you just heard, to Psalm 40, which in many ways is perfectly suited for this study that we've subtitled Praise in the Day of Trouble and Prosperity. And the reason that I say that is that, first of all, it is a praise psalm. But but beyond that, it's a praise psalm that David begins by praising the Lord for doing what? For delivering him from a day of trouble and then for bringing him into a day of prosperity. And isn't that the way that it works in life? It just is. Highs and lows, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, all of those things. So David begins this psalm by thanking the Lord and praising the Lord for the way that he's delivered him from this day of trouble and bringing him to a sure footing, as we'll see. But how does it end? Well, if you've done your personal worship this week, you know about the last third of it is David crying out yet again to the Lord for what? For deliverance. Why? Because he's gone over the top of the peak now and he's headed back down into the valley. Once again, he's heading into a day of trouble and he's crying out to God at the end of the psalm that he might be delivered once again. And that too is sort of emblematic of all of our lives. But I think what David is doing in Psalm 40, and maybe this is the way to look at it, is he's coming to us with the topic of praise and he's saying, let me tell you what it's all about. I'm going to give to you by means of this psalm the purpose of praise. And here's what it isn't. Praise is not designed and commanded and demanded by God, which it is incidentally, in order to satisfy the ego of an egotistical deity. It's not it. Now, he does command us to praise him, and I think we ought to think about that for a second and be honored by it in some sense. 
In other words, God comes to me and he comes to you and says, listen, I've brought you into being. I've given you all of your gifts and talents. I created the whole of this world, all of your opportunities, all of your resources, all of the relationships in your life. Every good and perfect thing that you enjoy day in and day out comes from the hand of your heavenly Father. I've done all of these things for you and I've made you for the single most dignified purpose in the whole of the universe, that is to say, to pour out your life in worship and in praise, in living out your praise, as well as singing it and, you know, clapping it and all of these other things that we do for the greatest being in the universe. It's glorious. It's remarkable. You begin to look at it like that and you think to yourself, I mean, if you're thinking reasonably, if you're thinking logically and you go, good grief, how can I not praise Him? How can I not? But the purpose of praise is not to satisfy the ego of God. He doesn't need anything from us. You know, God's not up in heaven waiting for somebody to pat Him on the back so that He can feel affirmed. That's not it at all. He's not deficient in anything or in any way. The purpose of praise is altogether missional. Meaning, it is mission through us to the other people in our world when we rightly praise the Lord and live for Him. And it is mission to us, incidentally, as well, when we rightly praise the Lord and live for Him. And here's what I want to do with Psalm 40. I want to show that to you from the psalm. And then I just want to stop having shown it to you and say, okay, hopefully you're convinced. But so what? Like, what does that even mean? Okay, so it's mission through us to the other people in our world. Got it, saw it. It's mission to us. It's good for my own soul to praise the Lord. Okay, I'm convinced. What do I do with it? What does it mean for me? So hang on to that. David begins Psalm 40 with this. He says to the choir master, a psalm of David, and then he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And I just want to stop and say, you know, that's actually not what he says. Here's what he really says, literally. He says, I waited, to which he then says and adds, waited for the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, man, I went through this desperately painful, despairing, distressing experience in life in which I cried out to God again and again and again and again. And here's the deal. Here was my experience. I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited. Good grief. I need to have a seat. I waited. I waited. Maybe I need to lay down and have a snack. I waited. I waited. I waited. I thought maybe he was never going to come. I waited. I waited. I, I waited. And then finally, he came. He says, I waited, waited for the Lord. There's no wonder this book is the most popular book in the Bible. Everybody gets that. Now, what did the Lord do? Here's his testimony. He says, he inclined to me and he heard my cry. And he drew me up from the pit of destruction, which is the language of death. And, and out of the miry bog, which is something you step into and then you don't get to step out of because you just go down until you're gone. And he set my feet upon a rock, something solid that you can stand on, making my steps secure. And in doing all of this, what did he do? He put a new song in my mouth. But what kind of song is that? It is a song of praise unto the Lord. And the word new in the Bible is a word that we need to come to understand because it's used differently in the Bible than you and I typically use it. So we use it as a word that refers to time. So I went out and let's say I bought a new car, you know, and I would say, hey, I got a new car. I got it yesterday. It's out in the driveway. Kind of excited about it. I only get one about every 15 years, which makes it sort of a big deal when it actually happens. Okay, so why don't you come on out and see my new car? Because the technology is a lot different from the one I had. It's amazing. I got a new car. It's not what the Bible is using that word as. It's a word of redemption in the scriptures. 
It speaks of something that's been ruined. That's been discarded. That's been wrecked in every way. That God takes, and with His amazing capacities, and at His own expense, makes brand new. And in the process, makes magnificent. What is David saying? He's saying, man, it's life that came out of death. That's what it is. It's light that came out of darkness. That's what I'm talking about. It's triumph that comes out of tragedy. It's joy that comes out of sorrow. It's a 1967 Camaro that somebody, you know, maybe you find in a junkyard and it's destroyed and it's trashed and it's awful. And nevertheless, that you take and at your own expense, maybe through the use of your own gifts, if you can do it, you make brand new. And man, it is so much more magnificent in 2017, isn't it? Than it was when it rolled off the assembly line in 1967. David says, let me tell you something about this desperately painful, despairing, distressing experience that I went through. God not only delivered me from it, so I'm not going through it anymore and put me on a solid ground so I don't feel like I'm sinking down into the earth and it's going to overwhelm me and, and destroy me. He did that. But he did that in such a way as to renovate my heart and soul, as to form and shape and change and make me into something better than I've ever been before. And, and actually, in our more honest moments, when that's what the Lord does, we look back and we go, man, I don't want to go back to that. I sure wouldn't choose to relive that, but I also wouldn't change that. However, since I'm trying to prove a point here about the purpose of praise, I want you to notice who it is that David is saying all of this to because he's not saying all of this to God. Now, he's saying it in the presence of God. He's talking about God, but he's talking about God to anybody who will listen. He's talking about God to the people in his world, in his life. He's talking about God to you and I. How? He wrote this down. He included it in the book of Psalms. We're still studying it. Thousands of years later. Why is he doing this? Because it's altogether missional. He's inviting us to come to know this God the way that he knows this God, and what is his apologetic? What is his means of doing that? It's his praise. Listen to what he says in verse 3 at the end. He says, many will see this great deliverance that the Lord has effected for me, and then what will they do? They will fear the Lord, meaning they'll stand in awe of the Lord. And what will be their response? Here it is, and they will put their trust in the Lord. Why? Because David persuaded them with really compelling, incredibly logical, sound arguments that God exists and he's worthy of their trust. No, I love those arguments. I think they have their place, but but because people are compelled that God exists and that He's worthy of their trust because of what they've seen in David's own life. What they've heard coming out of his own heart, out of his own mouth. Praise is missional. What it does is it gathers up all of the ways that God has been good to us, all of the ways that God has provided for us, all the ways that God has healed us, all the ways that God has comforted us, all the ways God has rebuked us and guided us and instructed us and given us wisdom, etc., etc., etc. And it puts it on display to the people in our world in such a way as to say to the people in our world, the ones we live with, the ones we work with, the ones we go to school with, the ones we come to church with, look at what God does for His people, by the way. Through faith in Jesus, you can become one of his people. It's missional. And so David says in verse 4, blessed is the man, meaning any man, any person, who like me, as he's saying, makes the Lord his trust, and therefore who does not do what? Who doesn't do what everyone else does, and the reason everyone else does it is because it's the only other option. 
who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. What is he talking about? He's talking about false gods. The Bible comes to us and talks to us all the time about false gods. We've got a whole list of them. We know what they are. Money, status, our own efforts and energies, other people. Just go down the line. Why does the Bible call them false? Because they are at their heart lies. Why? Because they have no loyalty or allegiance to us. No obligation really to do anything for us. And because in the very end of ends if not long before, they cannot provide to us what we're looking for. Listen, the reality is that all of us here, sorry for the newsflash, and everyone else everywhere will one day from the grave cry out for deliverance. What will money do for us then? Hey man, you are so connected. Yeah, that's not going to help. What about all your influence? Nah, I think that ended. There is only one. And David is saying, put your trust in Him. Blessed is the person who does that. And so having spoken a word of praise about God to the people in his world, David now speaks a word of praise to God, but he does it self-consciously knowing that all the people in his world are listening. And so speaking to God in their presence, David says this in verse 5, he says, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, but not only that, and your thoughts toward us, meaning toward us, your people. And as soon as I read that this week, it made me immediately think of Psalm 139, beginning in verse 16, where David says this, he says, your eyes, he's speaking to God, saw my unformed substance. What is he referring to? He's saying, you Lord knew me before you even formed me and brought me into being in any way. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And then he says, In your book were written for me, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What is he saying? He's saying, look, long before you formed me physically and gave me being, brought me into being, you formed and ordained every single day that you numbered out for me in this life. Why? So that once you brought me into being, by means of each one of those carefully formed days, you could continue to carefully form and shape me. And so then what does that mean? Well, among a lot of other things, it gathers up all the desperately despairing days, doesn't it? It gathers up all of the really painful days and confusing days. It gathers up all the uncomfortable days and the days that we really resent and don't like. It gathers up all of those days where I waited, waited for the Lord And it makes them meaningful, and it makes them purposeful, and it makes them good for those who trust the Lord. And that's where it's tested, isn't it? It's tested in those days. So David says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. To which he then adds, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast the sum of them, he says. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. Which is effectively what he's saying here in Psalm 40. Or before God's people, again, he says to God, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. And so then here's what I, David, am going to do. I will proclaim and tell of them. And here's why I, David, am going to do this. Because to do anything less with them would be wrong. Think about that. 
What he's saying is, God, you have worked in my life. You've delivered me. You've healed me. You've comforted me. You've rebuked me. You've given me instruction. You've given me wisdom. You've provided for me. You've done everything that you've done for me, not just for me. Indeed, not even primarily for me. But so that before your people, I can return this praise to you in a way that brings blessing to them. And for me not to publicly praise you for all of these various things would be for me to deny to them the spiritual encouragement and sustenance that they need for the good of their own souls that you gave to me to give to them. It's like God giving us a bunch of water, you know, and then walking by a thirsty guy and going, yeah, sorry, I don't really have any for you. The hungry man, and we deny him food from our pantry. The naked man, and we deny him clothes from our closet. I've got clothes older than my adult kids at this point, some of them. It's crazy. It doesn't belong to us. It's given to us as a trust that we might give it to the people around us in mission. And I'm going to tell you one of the most powerful things that happens, for me at least, each week is just watching some of you worship. And I don't want to freak you out by saying that. I'm not like, you know, looking at you or anything weird. So don't get weird. All you people are safe, right? Because I never turn around. So it's just you guys, actually, <laughs> as I'm thinking about it. Okay? But, I, but really, I, and I say that because, you know, I've been here a long time. And that's a wonderful and incredible blessing to me, frankly. But I know a lot of your stories. And I know a lot of your stories like really intimately. Like I know some of the things you've done. I know some of the things that have been done to you. I know some of the things that you've lived through. I know some of the things that you're living through now. The most powerful sermon that I get each week is knowing that and then seeing or hearing you worship. It's amazing. It's God's gift through you to me and to everyone else that he gathers with us. So David says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you, and so that I will proclaim and tell them. And yet he says, They, meaning your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us, are even more than can be told. But I'll do my best, he says. And then David says, In sacrifice and an offering. And if you think about that, what is he talking about? He's talking about in worship. I mean, those were the rituals of the worship of his day. They sacrificed animals, if you know the, the deal. Why did they do that? I mean, what's up with that? It all prefigures the cross. They brought lambs to prefigure the Lamb of God. That's how Jesus bursts onto the scene. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of this world. How? The expense of his life. They did it to atone for their sins. Do you know what that means? It means to cover over. So all throughout the Old Testament, God, through these rituals, is ingraining into His people the idea that there is an innocent one coming who by His blood will cover over the sins of the guilty and they all find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have the advantage of looking back. David was still in that system looking forward. But he begins to talk about worship and he says in sacrifice and offering and all the rituals of all of that, he says, you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. So you've instructed me in something and, I, and I've heard that something and that something is that burnt offering and that sin offering, at least those that are offered out of duty or offered out of obligation or offered out of habit. And you know, it's just kind of the thing that we do and that's how we often approach worship, is it not? 
Oh, we're going to sing because that's the time to do that. And then we're going to, somebody's going to read, which I've really been digging incidentally, but you know, because that's the time to do that. And then we're going to do the offering and that's coming and, and we're going to need to do that. And then, you know, after that, we're going to go to lunch. And David's like, listen, that's not the way to do it. It's a heart full of, of praise. It's a delivered heart that cannot contain sacrifice. So David says, look, okay, burnt offering, sin offering, at least offered like that, you have not required. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to bring you a different kind of sacrifice, a more costly, frankly, sacrifice. I'm going to bring to you the sacrifice of my praise. And in David's case, he's saying, and I'm going to write it down. We're going to call it Psalm 40. It's going to be included in the scroll of the book of Psalms, which is what I think he refers to next, so that everyone knows that I publicly praise you. He says, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I, David, says, behold, I have come. And the scroll of the book of Psalms is how I read it. It is written of me. And here's why, because this psalm is in it. I delight to do your will, O my God. Let it be known. Your law is within my heart. And so then, what can David rightly say? Because it's what we want to be able to rightly say as well. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart, but instead I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and faithfulness from the great congregation, for to do that would be wrong. It would be to walk by the thirsty and not give them a bottled water when you got like a case of it, or the hungry or the naked. And more than that, it would do injury to David as well. Because he's emboldened by his own praise to do what? To ask God to deliver him. His praise is not just good for everyone else. It's good for his own soul. And so he continues in verse 11, and he says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain. I did not restrain my praise. You will not restrain, he says, your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils, he says, have encompassed me beyond number. And what are those evils? Because this time he tells us. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me. It's the image of an army. And in this case, it's the army of all of his numberless sins that have pursued him and chased him down and encircled him. And they've encircled him in such a way that he says, as a result, I cannot see. The idea being, I can't see anything but them. I can't even see you, O Lord. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, he says. And my heart fails me, which is a desperate place to be. But what is the gospel? Because it speaks directly to that. The gospel is that when our hearts fail us, when our hearts fail one another, when our hearts fail Almighty God, and our hearts do all of those kinds of things, don't they? All the time. God's heart does not, indeed it cannot, fail His people. And that through Jesus Christ, He has pursued and hunted down the army of our numberless sins. And they are numberless. And defeated it entirely. And to what end? So that we can see. So that we can see His mercy. So that we can see His grace. So that we can see His beauty. So that we can see His holiness. So that we can see who and what He really is. And in the end of all ends, so that we can actually see Him. It's beautiful. And so David says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. 
Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. My goodness, don't celebrate another's failures. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, pridefully gloating over my failures as if they have none. Instead of being humbled by their own failures and coming to me in their brokenness to help. He says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually what we sang at the beginning of this service, which is great as the Lord. As for me, David says, I am spiritually poor and needy. Physically, he was the king. But spiritually, he says, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You, O Lord, are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And here's why. Because I'm waiting, waiting once again for your deliverance. So what is praise about? Because it's not satisfying the ego of God who needs nothing from anyone. It's not. It's about His mission to the world through us, beginning with our husband and wife or kid or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, beginning in our homes and then extending into our offices and into our schools and into the city and together when we come together. It's about His mission through us to the people in our world. And He has given us a testimony. Good grief, let us not conceal it. Let us not hide it. Let us not restrain it. But let us unleash it. And it's about His mission to us too. It is good for the soul, guys, to to praise the Lord. David, in other places, literally commands his soul to do exactly that. So, With that said, so what? Okay, we got it. Hopefully you see it. Hopefully you're persuaded. If you're not, just nod your head like you are because, you know, it's just helpful. But so what do I do with that? I mean, like, what does that mean for me? And I think, first of all, what it means for us is that praise is not optional, that we can't hide our praise from other people. We can't restrain it. We can't conceal it. We can't place it in our heart and go, eh, I don't think I want to do that. Praise is not optional. For to do that is to deny them the very thing that God has given to you for them. It's not even yours. It's theirs that He's entrusted to you to give away. So if you're hiding your praise from others, I want to ask you, why are you hiding your praise from others? Because the only answer that I could come up with is because it's embarrassing to do otherwise. In other words, okay, Tom, so I'm going to tell the Lord delivered me. Well, that's going to require me to tell everybody what I had to be delivered from. And honestly, I'd rather not do that. Oh, the Lord healed me. Well, that's fantastic. I'm jacked about that. But here's the thing. I don't want to tell them what I had to be healed from because it's intensely personal. Get the idea? The Lord gave me wisdom. Well, does that mean you were foolish? Well, yeah, but do we have to put that in the newspaper? I mean, you know, who is that about? It's about me. Oh, I don't, I don't want to sing. I don't want to clap. I don't want to raise my hands. And I'm not going to try to compel you to do that. Here's what I will say. If you want to do it in here, why don't you do it out here? Because I used to say that too. You know, I do, I do that in my heart, you know. And then the Lord kind of came to me and said, I gave you hands, so like, I mean, you could, you know, the whole design of your body, it seems to me, is it's an out here kind of thing. I mean, think about that. Work that through. We need to remember that praise is not about me and it's not about you. It's about God and the others around us. And when it becomes about us, it is concealed. It is restrained. It is hidden from those who need it 
and from the Lord who deserves it. One of the many things that I love about David, and there's a lot, is that he never does that. This guy who could have been really concerned about his image never hides his sins, he never hides his struggles, he never hides his failures, he never hides his embarrassments. He doesn't hide any of these things, and in fact, far from hiding them, he records them. He makes sure, not only that all the people in his day knows, know all about them, but that everyone since his day knows all about them. Why? Because he's not concerned with himself. He's concerned with the Lord and all of the people who will come and read documents like this that he leaves behind that will be drawn to the Lord as a result. Praise is missional. You know, one of the criticisms that I often hear about the church in general and about our church at times too is, you know, Tom, okay, here's the deal. I just don't get anything out of it. I hear that a lot. And that grieves me because I, I think that you ought to get something out of it, you know, and, and we, we want you to get something out of it. It's not that I don't think there's any utility to doing this for us on a personal level. In fact, I've already said praise is good for our own souls. So that kind of argues to that effect, does it not? But I sort of want to gently go, hey, um, what if it isn't about you? But what if instead it's about God and all the people around you who need the benefit, the spiritual encouragement of your own praise? Because it changes the dynamic. It, it means that when you and I come to church, that we're not customers. You know, we don't come here to get something. It means that when we come to church, we're not spectators. Like, we're not come here to watch a show. It means that when you and I come to church, we're not critics. And that isn't to say that we don't invite criticism. Good grief, we send out surveys, you know. We're constantly or getting, garnering criticism from people and trying to do what we do better, and we're far from perfect at it. So, so please, you know, don't think that that's not something we're interested in. It is, but, but I think the only question that you and I ought to be asking ourselves as we walk out of the doors of this place week in and week out is, Lord, you know, like, what did you think of my worship today? And by the way, was it a blessing not just to you, but was it a blessing to everyone around me as well? Because that's primarily what it's about. So praise is not optional. I think that's the first takeaway. And then the second thing is that we need to worship, not just for the good of our own neighbor, not just because the Lord deserves it, but for the good of our own souls. It is a wonderful thing to hear our own voice instructing our own souls as we sing these amazing songs or whatever about the goodness of God, about the faithfulness of God, about the salvation of God, about the delivering power of God, and to hear about all these other people who we can relate to in life even though they lived 3,000 years ago in this case, who went through all the same kinds of things as we did. We find our place in the history of God's people and we realize that their history is our history. Why? Because we belong to the same God and we carry through our lives that same kind of relationship. It's an amazing, incredible thing. So two questions and I'm done. Question number one is what do you need to crucify in order to unlock, to unleash your ability to properly praise Jesus? either with your story, with your friends, here, whatever. What is it? Because it needs to be crucified. And then secondly, what do you need to do to make praise and worship a priority in your life? Because here's the deal, God deserves it and He demands it, which is not something to be taken lightly. And we need you to do it. 
and you need you to do it. Okay? So chew on that. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do praise you that because of what you've done for us in Jesus, we have the capacity to call ourselves your children. And because by your Spirit, you have wakened us from the dead, spiritually speaking. You've turned the lights on and and helped us to see you and to see Christ and and to see ourselves and our need for Him. Uh, Lord, that our sin, as, as we've sang, is in fact washed away, that we are redeemed. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm us now with your greatness, with your goodness, with all that you are, with all that you've done. Father, I pray that in that realization, in that we would lose ourselves and that this praise would cease to be about us. Let us give no thought to ourselves. My goodness, we're not a big deal. You are. Help us to see that and to live that out in the way that we praise you and all that we do and here as well in Jesus' name. Amen.